Hi, I'm Melanie Marin-Pell, Managing Director of AJC's regional offices. For over a century, AJC has defended the values that unite us all. Across the U.S. and around the world, we're building durable coalitions to take on all forms of hatred and bigotry, including, of course, the world's oldest hatred, anti-Semitism. But we can't do this work alone. I hope you'll consider making a gift to AJC. If you support AJC today through December 31st, a generous donor has offered to double any contribution you make to AJC up to $350,000. To make your gift, please visit www.ajc.org donate. And welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. President-elect Joe Biden hopes to rejoin the Iran nuclear agreement and renegotiate some of its terms when he takes office next year. But given recent developments, including the targeted killing of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, the scientist who founded Iran's nuclear weapons program, that could be a challenge. Just this week, Iran enacted a law to boost its enrichment of uranium and expel international nuclear inspectors if sanctions aren't lifted soon after Biden moves into the White House. Seema Shine is the former head of the Mossad's research division and currently a senior researcher at Israel's Institute for National Security Studies. She joins us now to talk about those developments and their impact. Seema, welcome. Thank you. Let's start with the targeted killing of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. He had been singled out by Israeli leaders, including Prime Minister Netanyahu, as a threat. Why? First of all, he was uh, mentioned even before the prime minister in 2015, when the IAEA has published a, a paper of 11 questions that they have posed to the Iranians that are related to the nuclear program, to the military nuclear program. One of them was a demand to meet uh, Fakhrizadeh and to interview him. Of course, that was never allowed to the IAEA inspectors. His name was raised even before. And of course, in the intelligence, we knew his name for many, many years. And the reason for that is that he was the head of the weaponization group in the nuclear program. As you know, the Iranians have been saying to everyone that their program is for civilian purposes. Everything is uh, under the supervision of the IAEA. But uh, he was the one who was for years the head of the weaponization group. And as we know, not only from intelligence, but now also from the archive that was brought two years ago, a lot of things and their research and tests were done under the umbrella of the weaponization group. And what are we to make of these reports that robotic machine gun may have been employed to carry out the attack? Suddenly, you know, Iran is, is kind of changing the account of how the events originally unfolded. They're saying no, no men or women were on the ground. First of all, is that even possible? And, and why would they be changing that account? That's a very interesting uh, development. I agree with you. First of all, I don't think the fact that it was automatic rifles and without any uh, personal uh, touch, I don't think it is the correct one, but I don't know, of course, I'm just guessing. But the reason for that, for changing the, the story, is because I think they are very embarrassed with what has happened. And it is, uh, of course, it's not the first time. 
Three months ago, we know that the number two in Al-Qaeda was killed in Tehran. They tried not to publish it for three months, and then they had uh, somebody else published it in the States, and they continued to ignore it and to say that it didn't happen, but everybody knows it happened. Then there was an event, that an explosion in the new site that was deploying a new centrifuge, more advanced centrifuge. So there is a series of events in the last year. I'm not talking about things that happened several years ago, but in the last year, there are several incidents. And from their point of view, it's very much embarrassing to show how uh, they were infiltrated and how easy people could kill the person that was so guarded by everyone. So I think it's easier to go to a James Bond explanation and uh, believe that it was so extraordinary that they couldn't uh, even imagine it. Well, is that technology even possible? Not as far as I know, but, uh, you know, perhaps there is something. But if you want to be very accurate on a specific person, if you know that there are, as I understand from what was published, that there are three cars, one at the beginning and one at the end, and he's in the middle, and you want to be sure, it is difficult to believe that only a, a technical instrument could do it. At the end of the day, a person looking in his eyes on the target should have been in the place. That is my understanding. Now, is there any truth to reports that Israel has tried to weaken Iran's nuclear program by targeting at least five other nuclear scientists since 2007? We know that there were, I don't know if it's Israel did it, but we know that some other scientists in the nuclear field were killed. The question always raises when, when this happens, whether such a huge national program is dependent on one or two or three personalities. It's difficult to imagine that there is one who knows all the things and no one else. So I assume that uh, Fakhizadeh, that was a very charismatic, very knowledgeable person and uh, for many, many years involved in the project. But at the end of the day, if you look on the program on the long run, I don't think it will stop the program or it might even be, uh, you know, encouraging those who say we have to reach a nuclear capability because at that time we'll be immune, like North Korea, for instance. So the picture is a mixed one. So let's go back to the role that Fakhrizadeh played. He was a nuclear scientist. What is Iran's nuclear capability right now? I mean, has it enriched enough uranium to build a weapon, maybe more than one weapon? Was the explosion in Natanz a significant setback? Is this a setback? Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? So the program, as you know, since President Trump has left the JCPOA, it took Iran a year to try and see where it develops and if your Europeans are able to compensate on the sanctions that Trump has brought back. Once they saw that nothing in their benefit is occurring, they decided May 19 to start uh, violate gradually the JCPOA. And what we have today, according to the last report of the IAEA, is that Iran has 2,400 kilograms of enriched uranium. Uh, according to the agreement, they had to have only 300 kilograms. So it's uh, around, people say, around 12 times more than they could according to the agreement. They are enriching in two sites today. And according to the agreement, they had to enrich only in, on one site. And from that point of view, you know, the question of time of breakout and how much uh, fissile material they have is a, first of all, is a political question because you have to decide politically that you want to go on and to continue and reach a nuclear bomb. 
Iran yet has not done that. So from their point of view, what they have today, if you just take a paper and a pencil and you calculate what they have today, if they decide to enrich it to high degree, more than 90, which is the military degree, they could have, and they know how to do all the other things, they could have two devices, two nuclear devices with this quantity of low enriched uranium. But they didn't decide to do it. And I think they are not going to decide in the near future because at the end of the day, they are afraid that somebody will take them and something will happen. And they are not admitting that they are going in the direction of a military weapon. So if it's not a weapon, why enrich it to 90% plus? So for the time being, they are violating most of the clauses of the JCPOA, except for one, and that is the inspection. So for the time being, inspection is going smoothly as to be according to the agreement. And this is something that they are holding in their hand for the future if they will not get what they want to get. I would tell you that in the Iranian parliament, there is a law that is now in the process of being achieved and accepted that will demand the government to enrich to 20%, not just to four and a half as they are doing today, that are calling the government to leave the additional protocol so that the uh, inspection will be much, much less inspection in, in less places. Of course, it is the parliament. It doesn't have to be accepted by the government, but it shows the direction where Iran is saying to the Biden administration, if we will not achieve something, we can go in this direction. As to the question of what will be after the 20th of January, we know that elected president, as you say, uh, Biden, will wants to start diplomacy with Iran. We know that he even said that he wants to go back to the JCPOA, but actually it's impossible to go back, just to go back to the JCPOA, because a lot of things have happened during the time between the 2015 and 2021. It is a different Iran, the different posture in the region. The missile program is very developed. And also on the nuclear one, it will be, I think, even though I didn't support From my point of view, I didn't support leaving the agreement. I would prefer a Trump administration pressing Iran in order to improve the agreement, in order to prolong the agreement. But I don't think once it happened and once there is such a pressure on Iran, I don't think it will be wise to just give up everything that was achieved and get a relief of sanctions just like that, only in order to go back. Because after all, five and a half years have passed and we are approaching the six years and things are developing. So it's not a wise way to leave all the options that you have in your hand just for going back. Going back, but to negotiations that will improve the agreement. The timeline between January 2021 and June 2021 elections for president in Iran is a very short period. And from my point of view, there is a big question mark whether the two sides can, in such a short period, get to some real tangible achievements. So President-elect Biden has said that he hopes to include the Middle East Arab neighbors in the negotiations, in any renegotiations, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, not just the allies that originally signed on to the deal. I mean, in your view, what are the pros and cons of that possibility? I think it will be very important when there is a dialogue on the regional issues, as well as on the ballistic, because they are also under the uh, ballistic threat of Iran. 
I don't think it will be on the nuclear one. And I think it will be very difficult if you put all these elements in one room, all these countries in one room. They have so many problems on the agenda that it will be difficult. And in any case, you know, the problem of Yemen is not the problem of Syria. It's different and the problem of Iraq. So, of course, it is important because if you deal with regional issues, you do have to bring into the room uh, the regional partners. You cannot just bilaterally talk with Iran. Of course, it is important. Whether it will be possible, I think they will be cooperating with the U.S. But is there a bridge that you can put between Saudi Arabia and Iran, between uh, Israel and Iran? That's very, very difficult. So the timeline will be much longer. And perhaps they will find the parallel channel to deal with all the different issues with different participants. Because Syria is not the same as Yemen and Iraq is different from Lebanon. And that will be complicated. And I want to remind you, as my last remark, that on the table of the Biden administration, there is a huge list of important issues. And the Middle East is not the first, is not the second, and is not the fifth. They have Corona, economy, China, weather, you name it, North Korea, Russia. So how do you do all these things together? I learned to understand that in spite of the fact that the U.S. is such a huge and big uh, country and so many people and everything, when it comes to these national security issues, it's the same group of people that has to end all the issues, and it is very difficult. Seema, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Saba Sumech, the Associate Director of AJC Los Angeles. Saba, when you are at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? I'm going to be talking about Mizrahi Jewry. Jews have lived in the Middle East and North African countries for 2,500 years, making us the oldest Jewish communities in the diaspora. We, Mizrahi Jews, have lived in this region long before the advent of Islam and participated in every fabric of society. In the early 20th century, one million Jews were forced to flee the land of our ancestors and become refugees. Jews who lived in Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Iraq, Egypt, Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Iran, and many more countries were forced to flee due to anti-Semitic decrees, violence, and pogroms. Entire communities were effectively wiped out. The United Nations did not offer any help to the Jewish refugees who had their homes, properties, businesses, land, and passports taken from them by their neighbors and authorities. There was no international condemnation, no media attention, no human rights organization fighting on our behalf. And even today, the United Nations does not acknowledge the Jews who had their lives taken away from them before and after Israel's creation. Similarly, Mizrahi history, culture, language, and traditions have been left out of Jewish communal life and consciousness in America. I am an Iranian Jew with a PhD in religious studies and a focus on Middle Eastern Jewry. From preschool till eighth grade, I attended a Jewish day school. I learned about the pogroms in Russia, but not about the Farhud in Iraq. I took Jewish studies classes as an undergraduate and graduate student, and not once in any of the academic institutions I attended did they offer a course on Mizrahi history. There was not a single teacher or professor that taught me about Iranian Jewish history or the history of the Jews in the Middle East. Our history, culture, and trauma has been ignored by Jewish institutions and by universities. In 2014, the Israeli Knesset marked November 30th as the day to mark the departure and expulsion of Jews from Arab countries and Iran. 
This date was chosen since it is symbolically the day following November 29th, a day the UN partition plan for Palestine was adopted, and many communities of Jews in Arab countries and Iran started to feel the pressure and hostility from their Arab and Persian neighbors, and they were forced to leave their countries. As a result of this recognition, along with the push from Mizrahi scholars and activists, Mizrahi Jews have received growing recognition, and people are finally acknowledging that not all Jews are of European descent. In fact, over 50% of Israel's population is made up of Mizrahi Jews. I make this point especially as anti-Zionists justify their hostilities for the Jewish state within the ahistorical and ridiculous context that Jews are, quote, white colonizers and have no place in the Middle East. We are brown Jews that were kicked out of our birth countries in the Middle East. We have nowhere else to go besides Israel. Accusing Mizrahi Jews who share their history and collective trauma and praise the existence of the Jewish state for rescuing them as, quote, Mizrahi washing is another form of gaslighting Jews and erasing the Mizrahi experience and narrative. Today with the Abraham Accords, we're seeing a different Middle East, one that is not made up of a cold peace with Israel, but actual regional relationships. However, relations with the Arab world is not new as Jews have existed in that region for over 2,000 years. Mizrahi Jews should be used as a bridge between the Arab world and the Jewish community because that is the homeland of our ancestors. Now more than ever, it is important for the Arab world to learn about their Jewish history and of communities that not only survived, but thrived in their countries up until the mid 20th century. It is equally important for Jewish communities to learn about their own history in the Middle East and North Africa. Thank you so much, Saba. Thank you for shedding light on this injustice here and and on an Advocacy Anywhere program earlier this week. You did a lovely job on both. And I encourage our listeners to find that Advocacy Anywhere program on our website and watch it if you have not already. It's quite moving. At our Shabbat table, we will talk about joy, light, and miracles in a dark season. My son has fallen in love with Shabbat candles. So on the occasional Friday, we have started to light them. It's rather unceremonious from that point on. Their father is often still working. The kids and I eat whatever leftovers are still in the fridge, but we light the candles. It's a lovely way to end the week and remind ourselves that there is light at the end of most dark tunnels. As I walked the neighborhood this past holiday weekend, I realized everyone else is lighting candles too. Christmas lights are up on all the houses much earlier than before. In our neck of the woods, this was largely due to an unseasonably warm Thanksgiving. I mean, why decorate your yard in the bitter cold when you can get a head start and string lights in the sunshine? But I think it also had a little to do with a need to gin up some joy. With Hanukkah around the corner, we hopped on that bandwagon. We went up into our attic, we dug out our menorahs and our lights, and we did a little stringing of our own. After all, Hanukkah is a celebration of light, a celebration of life's miracles, big and small, and the stories that live on long after. Our family's menorahs have stories of their own. One came from Israel, a gift from my grandparents to my parents that was passed down to us. The other I bought from, well, I never really figured out what it was. It was a dingy storefront cluttered with tools and pipes and spare parts. It was never open, always dark, always locked. I guess it was a junk shop. Anyway, my next door neighbor and I would go out to the area bars from time to time. On the way home one night, we peered through the smudged windows and spotted a hidden treasure, a menorah. Bronze, with a beautiful texture hammered into each candlestick and a dove to hold the shamash candle. Each day afterward, I walked by the window on the way to the train and looked to see if it was still there. I dreaded the day I would walk by and not see it anymore. 
So one day, I marched into the barber shop next door, and I asked the barber how to reach his neighbor. He helped put me in touch, and before dawn one morning, the owner unlocked his shop and sold me that menorah, no doubt thinking I was crazy as a loon. I wrapped the menorah in blue tissue paper, and I presented it on the second night of Hanukkah to my neighbor. It was then that he realized why it had disappeared from the window in the past week, because he too had been checking for it regularly. That was the night he and I decided to give dating a try. Eight months later, we were engaged. Ten months later, married. (laughs) Twelve months later, parents. We light that menorah every year now, and we tell our kids the story of our courtship, our own little Hanukkah miracle. (laughs) Now, it bears mentioning that in addition to finding the menorahs and other lights in the attic, I also found the Hanukkah candles from last year melted into one rainbow-swirled brick of wax. Yes, it's still 2020, folks, and it apparently gets very hot in our attic. But in a global pandemic, that's a minor setback. More candles have been purchased, and we will kick off our celebration next week. I wish all of you a happy Hanukkah, full of light, joy, oh, and at least one good story. Sefi, what will you be talking about? Oh, Manya, that's incredible. Look, I'm, I'm no Grinch, okay? Let's just make that clear. I'm no Grinch, but I'm not always the biggest fan of Christmas, like everywhere, like so much Christmas in your face, whatever. And this year, I was like going for a walk on Thanksgiving or the day after, and all the Christmas lights were up in my parents' neighborhood too, like what you're describing. And it was just so beautiful and so necessary and so needed. We all need that light. So I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you, Christians, for putting up your lights so early. And to those of you who haven't yet, there's still plenty of time. But get it up early, and we'll try to return the favor with our uh, Hanukkah lights in the windows. At my Shabbat table this weekend, we'll be talking about Israeli politics. There were lots of political rumblings in Israel this week, and it's possible that the country will be heading to parliamentary elections as soon as March for the fourth time in two years. If that happens, you can bet that we'll bring you all the news you need to know here on People of the Pod. But no matter what happens with the Knesset, Israel will hold elections this spring for president. Ruvain Rivlin, Israel's current president, will complete his seven-year term in July. And then, sometime before then actually, the 120 members of the Knesset will elect his replacement by secret ballot. This week, the leader of Israel's greatly diminished Labour Party, Amir Peretz, who is also the longest-serving member of Knesset, threw his hat in the ring, joining the legendary entertainer Yehoram Gaon, now 80 years old, and several less prominent names as people competing for the position of president. Now, the institution of the Israeli presidency often seems weird to Americans, because we are used to a system where the president, the American president, is both the head of government and the head of state. But in Israel, those two roles are separated. The prime minister is the head of government, making them the most powerful political figure in the country. The president, however, is the head of state, performing largely ceremonial duties like signing laws passed by the Knesset, greeting foreign dignitaries, and formally receiving ambassadors. The last two presidents, Shimon Peres and Ruvain Rivlin, have been sort of mascots for the Jewish state sanding off the rougher edges they acquired during their decades in politics and relishing that role of elder statesman. Whether Israel goes to parliamentary elections or not, there will doubtless be a great deal of political news coming out of the country in the next several months. I'll be keeping one eye on this race as well. And that's what I'll be talking about this week at my Shabbat table. 
Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.